Have you ever had a season of life where you resisted God's authority? Maybe you're in that season now. Um, there are some things that you know that God would not want you to do this thing, but you're doing it. Uh, maybe there's um, a season of your life that you look back on. You know, uh, maybe it was a spring break or a summer break or a year or a decade where you were living in complete resistance to God's authority. And it's not that you didn't know what God you know, wanted you to do, but you just weren't doing it. Aren't we all in that season from time to time? Maybe it's financially or it's professionally or it's the way that we're treating someone in a relationship or maybe it has to do with our sexuality or maybe it has to do with, um, you know, just the kinds of decisions we're making or the kinds of things we're thinking about or we have seasons where we resist God's authority. And that's what Psalm chapter two is about. Psalm chapter two um, is where we'll be today. This is on page um, 472, if you have a Bible and want to follow along. Um, Psalm 2 paints this picture of the whole world in rebellion against God. The first three verses here say that the nations rage and the peoples plot against him. It says that the kings and the rulers of the earth conspire together against God and against his king. And then in verse three, it tells us why. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Why do so many People, literally all people, rebel against God. Why is it in us to oppose him, to resist him? Why is this true of the power structures of the earth and all the things going on out there and also in here? Why? Verse three says, because... There's something in us that views God like he's got us in chains. Like God's authority is a prison. Like it's, we've got these ropes tied around us. We're trapped. God is holding us hostage is how we feel. God wants us to do these things and our lives would be so much better without him so much better without what he thinks. We know better than him. That's the feeling underneath all of this rebellion. Isn't that true? Like this goes back to the beginning of time with the first humans. In the garden, in Genesis chapter three, the serpent tempts Eve with this simple little lie. Look, 
if you eat of the tree that God said you're not supposed to you know, eat from, I mean, how dumb of a rule is that, right? If you eat from it, nothing bad's going to happen to you. In fact, God is keeping you from something. God is trying to limit you. God is trying to ruin your life. He doesn't care about your happiness. What you need, if you're going to be happy, and if this world is going to be a good place, what you really need is to break free from the chains, to throw off the ropes. He's got you as a hostage. And isn't that the lie underneath all of our rebellion? Whatever sin you love, whatever sin is fun to you that you enjoy, and not all sin is tempting to you. All of us are tempted by different kinds of things. Some sins are like, why? What kind of a gross, sick person would do that? Or who would do that? Or who would struggle with that? Or who would... But then all of us have sins that we kind of like. All of us have things that are fun, that we enjoy, that God says not to do. And for the sin that you enjoy, whenever you give in to the temptation to do it, isn't it true that the lie underneath that is, oh, but it's really not that bad for me. It's actually pretty good. God doesn't really know. Or, okay, I know in the long run that this maybe doesn't work out. Okay, I can, I can acknowledge that. But, but the consequences aren't that big now. They're not that serious. It's not that big of a deal. It's, it's not that, that this is going to hurt anyone or, or do much long-term damage. This is just God trying to get the chains around me, trying to get the ropes around me. And so what I need, what will really be good for me, what I really want is just to be free from that. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth conspire together and take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one? Because we think we know better than him. Because we think we know what will make us happy more than he does. Because we think that we would be a better king than him. And how does God respond to all of that plotting and scheming? Now, again, most of, most of us are not thinking consciously about that every single time we gossip or do something you know, else relatively minor that we kind of enjoy, but that God says you're not supposed to do. We're not thinking that you know, deeply about it. But that's what's going on. And how does God respond to that? Verse four says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Now, isn't that a little surprising? Is that what you expected in verse four? I mean, if it hadn't just been read and you, you know, hadn't studied this before, do you think of God as a God who laughs? But here he is looking down at the rebellion 
and all of the plotting of the peoples and the nations and the kings and the rulers and all of their scheming and all of our scheming to try and get what we want and break loose from God's annoying chains. And God looks down and he laughs and ridicules them. Now, this is poetry. This is poetic language. I don't, I don't know that God physically laughs. But this helps us convey the sense of how God views these schemes. It kind of reminds me of uh, in the documentary, The Last Dance. Uh, some of you may have seen that. It's about Michael Jordan and uh, basically the, the Bulls in the 90s, the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. And um, there's this one scene, and this might be offensive as uh, Seattle, you know, Seattleites. But there's this one scene where uh, in the documentary, Gary Payton is talking and he is saying how if he had guarded uh, Michael for the whole series, that the series could have turned out differently because uh, the Sonics could have figured out a way to, to beat uh, the Bulls had he just been uh, guarding MJ and been able to contain him the whole time. And they take this iPad um, with the video of Gary Payton saying that, and they just hand it to Michael Jordan to let him watch and uh, to get his reaction to that. And he just laughs and ridicules. And that, I think, is the kind of scene that the psalmist is trying to paint here. It's like, how absurd, how absurd to think that, first of all, that, that you know better than me? God's going, I made you. And you think you're going to look at me and say that you know better than me, that you know more about how life should work than me, that you know more about what would make you happy than me. That's absurd. And you think that with enough scheming and plotting, you're going to somehow break free from my reign and authority, that you're going to escape judgment, that it's just, well, it's just a small thing. It's not really going to hurt anybody. It's not a long-term thing. It's not going to have any major consequences. It's not really going to ruin anybody's life. It's just a thing I want to do. It's just fun. You think that you are better positioned to judge that than me? It's ridiculous, God says. None of our scheming, none of our plans threaten God's plan at all. And so after God laughs and ridicules, even the thought that we would know better than him and that our lives would be better without him, here's what he does. Verse five. Then he speaks to them, to these people of the rebellion, which is me and you. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And here's what he says that is terrifying. Verse six, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. What God says in the face of all of the rebellion is, 
I am still resolutely committed to doing what I have set out to do. And that is, I am going to put my king, my anointed one on the throne on my holy mountain. And all of the planning and all of the plotting of the world is going to do absolutely nothing to stop that. God is not reconsidering things after the kings of the earth have conspired together and thought of a new plan to break free from God's authority. God does not listen to our reasoning about why sin is good and go, you know, okay, hold on. We'll, we'll have another session and we'll evaluate it, okay? I've heard your concerns and we'll take them to heart, okay? So let's get together and think about this. Maybe the world and maybe your life would be better if stealing was okay, or if lying was okay, or if adultery was okay, or if murder was okay, or if comparison was okay. Or maybe your life would be better if we just had a little bit of slander and a little bit of gossip and a little bit of bitterness and a little bit of greed. And then, okay, we'll consider a little bit of that. He does not listen to our complaints. He does not listen to our concerns about why his authority feels like sabotage, like we're being held hostage and we're just under this oppressive regime. He doesn't listen to all of those things and say, all right, well, let me take it into account. Instead, he says, we're still doing what we set out to do. My king will still be established on the holy mountain. And then we get a little bit more information about what that king and what his kingdom will be like. Verse 7. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Now there are a few things going on in verses seven through nine. First, God says, presumably to the king of Israel, I will make you my son. I will say to you, you are my son, and today I have become your father. What's going on there? Well, this is what's called a coronation psalm. That is, this is something that would be read when a new king was established. And so for the nation of Israel, they understood that when someone is installed as king, it's as if this is God's son on the earth. And the reason that they thought that is because of a promise that God had made to David, Israel's king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can go read this. 
God makes a promise to David and he says that your house is going to be established forever. That is, someone from your line will continue to be the king in Israel. And that line, that seed, that son of yours will reign forever over all of the earth. And I will be a father to him and he will be my son. This is 2 Samuel 7. Like I said, you can go read that. And so Israel takes from that. Okay. So it's as if all of David's descendants, all of the kings of Israel are like the son of God in some sense. And so God is pledging his allegiance to David and to David's line. And even though Psalm 2 doesn't say at the beginning that it's written of David, Psalm 3 is. In the New Testament, this psalm is attributed to David. And so the tradition was that you were supposed to read Psalm 2 from the mouth of David. And so David is the one saying in verse 7, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. So David understands it's like God's my father and all of my sons are also the sons of God. All of those who reign in Israel are reigning with God as their father. That's the first thing that we see. Then we see that all of the nations are going to belong to this king. David's son will reign over all of the earth. All of the nations will be his possession. And verse nine, this king from David's line will also break them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. There's a couple different images going on there. Let's talk about the shattering pottery first. This is um, an ancient practice where um, a king would um, take a piece of pottery and take some kind of you know, hammer or something and smash it as just a way of, of representing, this is what my judgment will be like. For all of those who obey, this is what will happen. I'm sorry, for who disobey. All those who rebel, this is what will happen. And so it's a, it's just a, a metaphor, all right? A scary one, but a metaphor. And that's what this king is going to do. And he's going to, it says, verse nine, he's going to break them with an iron scepter. And the word scepter there is kind of interesting. Um, typically, it refers to a rod or a staff that would belong to a shepherd. It becomes a symbol for authority in the ancient world and in the Old Testament. And so this king who's going to inherit the nations, who's going to rule over the nations is going to be a shepherd king, just like his father, David. David was a shepherd before he became king. And this king will also be a shepherd. And this king is going to fulfill the promise that God made to David, but also to one before David. This king is going to fulfill what God promised to this man named Judah in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah 
this one tribe of Israel. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes. And the obedience of the peoples of the nations belongs to him. God has made a promise that Judah is going to have a son who's going to rule. He's going to be a shepherd king over all the nations of the earth. And then God has made a promise to David that he is going to have a shepherd king who's going to rule all the nations of the earth. And so Israel could take heart, they thought, because God's going to keep his promise. Even though all the nations are raging, even though all the kings of the land are conspiring against us, God promised that David's line will endure forever, that the house of David will not fall until it did. In 586 BC, the kingdom falls. What happens to the dynasty? What happens to the promise? Was it lost? While the house of David seemed to be lost and the kingdom seemed to be shattered, the line of David continued. And it continued into the first century. And it led this one family to the city of David called Bethlehem. And when the one who was born there grew up, he entered the scene and made his first appearance with these words, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. This person, of course, is Jesus. Jesus enters the scene with those words, why? Why the words repent? That is, hey, stop what you're doing. Hey, the way that you're thinking about life, it needs to change. The way that you think that you need to break free from all of God's chains and break free from the ropes and that God has got you as a hostage and all that, hey, the time for that thinking has come to an end because the kingdom of God is at hand. What God promised to Judah and what God promised to David is going to happen in me, Jesus would say. Why is that terrifying? That should terrify us. Why? He says that God is saying this in his anger and in his wrath. Why is that a terrifying thought that the king is coming, the king is Jesus, and so you need to repent, you need to change? Why? Because, verse 9, he's going to break the rebellion. Who is he breaking? He will break them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Who is he breaking? He's breaking the rebels. He's breaking the people who conspire. He's breaking the people who look at God and say, you're holding me hostage. I want to do things my way. 
My life would be better without you. I'm smarter than you. He's looking at those and he's coming to to break them. This is a terrifying thing. And so, why in the world? Why in the world would this king and his coming ever be good news to you? I mean, he's just the tyrant who's come to make you pay for everything and to make you do what he wants. Why in the world should you surrender to him? And the answer is because of the kind of shepherd king that he is. See what Psalm 2 does not unpack for us, but what future Psalms will and what future prophecies will is that this shepherd king does come to judge and he will hold the world to rights and he will shatter the rebellion. He will crush the enemy. But before he does it, he will be a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Before he comes to crush the rebellion, he comes to be crushed for the rebellion. Before he comes to destroy the enemy. He comes to be destroyed for the enemy. Why would he do that? Why would a king who has been installed, who has been rebelled against, mocked, cursed, why would a king who has been had all kinds of false accusations lofted at him. You're trying to make my life worse. You're terrible. You don't know anything. Why would that king lay down his life for the rebellion? Only because this is a king who loves rebels. This idea absolutely melted the hearts of a group of rebellious sinners in the first century. This was a group of guys who between them had all kinds of sick, sick stuff. But after they spent time with Jesus and after they saw his crucifixion and after they experienced his resurrection from the dead, 
they realized that even sick rebels like them could be forgiven. And so they show up, you can read this in Acts chapter two, they show up in Jerusalem, speaking to the very people who crucified the king and they say, repent. Same message Jesus started with. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. You crucified him, but you can be forgiven. You rebelled against him, but so have we. But you can be forgiven. The one that you crucified, he died so that rebels could escape the crushing that will come. The one who was crucified has been raised from the dead. And at his resurrection, it's God's coronation ceremony where God says to the world, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. And so this little group of of Jesus followers start to spread this message that Jesus is the king. And he's been crucified so that you can be forgiven. He's been raised from the dead. So repent, follow him. And the same people who crucified Jesus, the people who were in charge, hated that. And so they arrested him. They made all these threats and they said, look, we're going to have you killed if you keep talking about this Jesus person. And so then they had them beaten and they sent them away and they said, don't talk about him anymore. And so they go out after they're released and they get together with the others who are followers of Jesus and they open their Bibles to Psalm chapter two. And they read Psalm chapter two, verse one, and they say, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. And they realize that this is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who's been conspired against. Jesus is the one that the rulers are trying to overthrow. And then do you know what they do? They go out and they boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, even in the face of threats. Why? Because they know the rest of Psalm 2. This shepherd king who was crucified was raised and he ascended and someday he will return to finish Psalm 2. So why should they fear the kings and the rulers of this earth? Why should they be losing sleep over all of the political drama in Jerusalem? And was there a lot of political drama in Jerusalem at the time? Uh, yeah, just Google it. Why should they not lose sleep over that? Because the one enthroned in heaven says, I have installed my king. The one enthroned in heaven has sent his son. 
and he will have the last word. So how should we respond to this? How should we respond? Well, verse 10 gives us some application. It says, so now, here's what you should do. Kings, if you've got authority at all, any kind of authority, here's what you should do. Be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Do you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is simply living with the future in mind. It's making decisions today in light of what will happen in the future. And now you know the future. The shepherd king, Jesus, the once and future king will return and he will crush the rebellion. So what's the wise thing to do? Should you continue in your rebellion? Or should you do what the shepherd king said when he first appeared on the scene? And should you repent? Should you say, I I don't want to be part of the rebellion anymore. I want to be transferred from this kingdom into a new kingdom. I want to be a citizen of that kingdom now. I don't want to be part of the rebellion anymore that's going to be crushed. I want to be on the winning side. How do you do that? How do you transfer Well, if the way that you transferred was by you ending the rebellion, then you would be in deep trouble. Because the rebellion goes way deep into our hearts. The way that you transfer, the way that you escape from the future crushing and breaking and shattering that the king will bring as you look to the one who was broken and crushed for the rebellion. When the king returns and he's coming to judge, what's the reason that you're going to give for why you should escape? Well, I'm not that bad. Well, but there's so many other people who are worse than me. Well, but I've done my best. Well, but, well, but I, well, but I, well, but I. The only refuge on that day is not going to be from him, but in him. The only way to escape the punishment of the rebellion is to look to the one who was crushed for the rebels. Have you done that? See, what this means here 
to be wise. Verse 11, it says, serve the Lord with reverent awe, rejoice with trembling, pay homage to the son or kiss the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. This is offering us two things. It's offering us a challenge and a comfort. The challenge is you've got to stop trying to be king and you've got to let him be king. The reason that's challenging is because we're good at trying to be king. We're good at trying to think that we know what is best for us. What it means to escape the punishment of the rebellion is to say, I don't don't want to be king anymore. I want you to be king. Have you done that? This is equally hard for religious people and irreligious people. For non-religious people, and that's some of us in the room, you know, religion is all about your rules and this is what you're supposed to do. And you're just not a rule person. And the idea of submitting to God's rule in your life does feel like putting on some chains. But Jesus is the once and future king. He's not a consultant. And so what it means for him to be king means that you start living your life and you say, I will obey what you say, even when it doesn't make sense to me. A consultant is someone you hire to come in and tell you what they think, and then you can do with it what you want. That's not who Jesus is. In order for you to, in order for you to surrender to this king, you have to say, you're the king. You call the shots. It's also hard for irreligious people. I'm sorry, I already talked about irreligious people. It's also hard for religious people, and here's why. Religious people are people who like rules. And just give me, tell me what to do and I'll do it, you know? And um, if Jesus is king and if Jesus has ultimate authority, then that means that you are not okay the way that you are. See, as a religious person, you might feel pretty good about yourself. I do a good job. I'm, for the most part, I'm a good person. You're not perfect. You wouldn't admit that. You wouldn't claim that, but, but you're pretty good. And one person said it really well, I think. The best way to avoid Jesus sometimes is to avoid sin. And what they meant was, by becoming a really good person who keeps all the rules, you actually can make yourself feel like you don't really need Jesus because you're not that bad. You're not really part of the rebellion. There's a bunch of rebellious idiots in the world, but that's not you. You've been faithful. You've done what you're supposed to do. You've served all these years. You've, you've. But Jesus is the shepherd king who says, the only way, the only way to avoid the judgment. The only way to avoid the crushing is to recognize that you need me. 
So it's a challenge to us. But it's also a comfort to us. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series, Aslan is the lion who's the king who's been away for a time, and uh, Beaver says that he's coming. And Lucy, in the story, hears that he's coming and that he's a lion, and that surprises her. And so she's like, I didn't know he was a, a lion. That kind of, seems kind of uh, scary to me. Um, is he safe? Because I wasn't expecting a lion. And Beaver says, uh, who said anything about safe? He's a king. He's not safe, but he is good. And here's why that is a comfort to, to you. Because when this king returns, there is refuge to be found in him. His coming will set the world right. It will make things the way that they should be. It will crush evil. He will make his blessings flow as far as the, the curse of sin is found. It's a good thing that he's coming. And there is refuge to be found in him because of what he accomplished as the shepherd king on the cross. Today, we get to take the Lord's Supper together, which is a reminder and a picture of the fact that, that this king is coming again and we can feast with him for eternity if we come and we surrender and we make him king. I'm going to pray for us and ask the Holy Spirit to help us with this. And then we'll give you instructions for how we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son, the king. God, I want to pray right now for, for those in the room who maybe have been obeying you, but they don't love you. They've been good at keeping your rules, God, but they, but they don't really love you. God, I ask that you would help them to see the beauty of a king on a cross. And would that humble them? Would that melt their heart? Would it cause them to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus? God, I pray for those who are in open rebellion. God, they're not convinced that your way is good. God, I ask that you would also melt their heart. Would they see the wonder of your ways? 
the goodness of your rule and reign. Would they see your love? God, I pray for those who are in the fight right now against a particular sin. They've been tempted even this weekend, or maybe they've failed this weekend. And God, the weight of their sin feels too heavy to bear. They are terrified when they hear the idea that you're coming. God, would they take refuge in the sun? God, they do not have to crush themselves. And they can be spared the crushing because of the one who's been crushed. God, would you help them to feel that? Would you help them to trust that? And God, even when they can't, we pray that you would help their unbelief. God, make us wise. Help us live with your future coming in mind. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Well, we're going to take communion together, and we're going to do it the old school way today. Um, as the plate is passed, uh, you'll receive the bread. If you would, uh, hold on to that. We're going to take that together in just a moment. The Lord's Supper is a picture of what this shepherd king has accomplished for his people. It's a picture of how he was crushed so that they could be spared. The bread is a picture of Jesus's body. The cup is a picture of his blood. His body was nailed to a cross. His blood was shed so that sinners like us could go free. When we bring the bread to our mouths and we eat, when we bring the cup to our mouths and drink, what we're doing is declaring, confessing to ourselves and to the people around us that we need Jesus and what he has done. It's our only hope in life and in death. We need what Jesus has done. And by personally eating and personally drinking, we're saying we trust him. And so this meal is a reminder of what Christ has accomplished for us in his death. But it is also a reminder of what will be true when Christ the King returns. When he returns, we will feast with him in Zion on his holy mountain. When he returns, evil will be destroyed, including the evil that's inside of us, and we will reign with him. And that's what we're reminding ourselves of as we take this supper. We'll take the bread together in just a moment, and then the cup will pass. You'll get the cup, and then you can take the cup as you feel led on your own. 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In a moment, the cup. In a moment, the cup will come by, and you can get that, and you can take that as you feel led.